0: My name is Blake I'm one of the Bible teachers here at First Baptist Church and what a thrill to get to be here with you this morning talking about David and Goliath this morning uh, there's a listening guide for what I'm going to talk about and so you have it on the back of your uh, of, of the little card that you picked up coming in that's just there for those of you who are like uh, check mark type people you like to keep progress with how far we are how far along we are in the sermon that's there for you if you're If you're a person who checks off the days off that calendar on your wall every day and we know who we are, then that's for you. That listening guide's for you. There are some blanks to fill in as we move through the the scripture this morning. Talking about fighting battles. uh, Talking about fighting battles and how we fight battles today. And so let's think first of all, what are the battles that we fight today? What are the battles that we're called to fight today? I suppose there's I suppose there's some sense in which just the, just the everyday mundane ordinariness of our day can be a battle from time to time. I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which all of us are fighting battles just by showing up every single day to the exact same thing, whether it's mundaneness at home or mundaneness at work or mundaneness at school, the ordinary. There's a sense in which just showing up can be fighting a battle, but I think that there's more to it than that. I think that I think that we have seasons all of us in our lives, days, weeks, entire seasons when we feel like we're fighting battles. They can be relational, right? We can be fighting relational battles at home, we can be fighting relational battles in the workplace, in the neighborhood, neighbors, at school. Or maybe it's the opposite of relationships. Maybe it's maybe you're a part of you find yourself as a part of the, of the epidemic that is facing our society today, which is an epidemic of loneliness. Loneliness itself can be a battle that we're fighting. Physical health battles that we fight. Financial battles, being out of a job, being, uh, being overextended financially can be a battle for us. Mental health battles, anxiety and depression can be a battle for us. And then there's, of course, the cultural Battles, what it feels like to press up against a world who ideologically believes very differently than we do. And how does that work? And and, and feeling like we're in a battle there. What we're gonna talk about this morning. We're gonna talk, about, me. We're gonna talk this morning about what it about how we fight those battles. I think that. I think it matters to God. It mattered to God that David would be referred to as a man after God's own heart. And so the question that I thought we would focus on this morning is, what does it look like when a person after God's own heart fights the battles that you and I have been fighting in our own lives? What does that look like to fight as a person after God's own heart? Because I believe that how we fight matters to God. And so where are we in the story? Uh, We haven't come that far from last week. Last week we were in 1 Samuel chapter 16. David the child is anointed as a king, but he wouldn't take the throne for many years. Uh, Saul would stay on the throne. Saul, uh, who who we come in the story to understand, is kind of a half-hearted king. Some of the things he did was good. Some of the things he did were not so good. One of the things he did that was not so good was he, as a monarch, as a king, he ruled from a place of fear. And so he he kind of he kind of implemented a an environment of fear. He was what you might call a fear-mongerer in some ways. And it's why we're not so surprised when we get to the place in the story in chapter 17 that we're in today where we've got the entire army of Israel on one side of this valley and on the other side the Philistine army and then the whole army of Israel is literally paralyzed with fear. In the first place, that's the environment that their king has created, but in the second place, the Philistine army was, was a profoundly powerful army with lots and lots of successes, to their name. And so what's been happening as they've each been there stalemated over this valley and uh, people who know a lot more about fighting wars than I do uh, understand that the, the terrain, the rocky terrain in this valley would have made it really difficult for the armies to even fight this battle. The Philistines were, were, were heavily armored. They had lots of chariots and and vehicles that were wonderful ordinarily for fighting wars but they wouldn't have been much help to them in this particular terrain. In fact there's a a battle that happens just shortly after this uh, where the scripture is very clear that the terrain itself ended up killing more people than the soldiers killed and so the terrain made this a really difficult battle to fight. So the, the two armies were just standing on either side of this valley staring at each other and every day for 40 days Goliath As Pastor Jimmy referenced, this giant of a champion from the Philistine army would come out and curse the the Israeli army and challenge them to come out and fight him. At the same time as that's going on, young David, the youngest of eight boys, who by this time we believe is grown up a little bit more, probably not a child anymore. Uh, At this point, though, he's still not old enough to fight in the army, his three oldest brothers are, and his father sends him to the front lines or to the the camp, the encampment, with supplies for his three brothers. David gets to the front, to the the encampment. He hears Goliath doing his usual twice-a-day taunt of the people of Israel, of the army of Israel, and he also hears the soldiers around him, the Israeli soldiers, talking about what promise would be made. What promise has been made by Saul to anyone who would fight Goliath? And so David volunteers to fight Goliath. And that's where we pick up today. We're going to be reading from together, all together, from 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning with verse 38. It'll be up on your screens, but join with me. Stand up if you would, and join with me as we read this passage together. Here we go. Then Saul gave David his own armor a bronze helmet, and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt of this ruddy-faced boy, Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Have a seat. I can't go in these. I love that. I love David's response to trying on Saul's armor. It doesn't actually say that the problem with it was that it was too big. It doesn't actually say that. In fact, it it kind of implies that it fit him. He just didn't know how to use it. And so the fact that it seems to have fit him is one of the things that makes us think David is older by now. This isn't the young boy anymore. He's a little bit older. But he just doesn't know how to move In this armor. He doesn't know how to use this. He's never been trained in it. He's never done this before with armor on. He volunteered to enter the fight. Saul gives him his armor and he just can't do it. I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. They're just not comfortable for him. This is a this is a really important takeaway, I believe, for us as Christ followers as we fight our battles in this world. We can, we can fight them exactly the same way the rest of the world fights them. We can use the tools of war that the rest of the war uses. We can depend upon and, 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 and hope in the powers of this world in order to fight our battles if we want to. Or we can say, along with David, I can't fight this way. I can't do it this way. We can rely instead the way David did upon God and upon God's ways of fighting our battles. And oh, how I wish we, God's people, would say together, we can't go in this. We can't fight with these tools the way the rest of the world does. The powers of this world, political powers, economic powers, Social powers. Those are the powers that the world uses to fight its battles. Oh, how I wish that we would all say together as Christ followers, we're not interested in fighting with those powers. We're not interested in placing our hope in those powers. The powers of this world are not worth our using, are not not worth our hope for victory. Now, don't read this story wrong. Don't read this story as David defeated Goliath because he had a sling. David used the tools that he was used to using, and that's a good thing. But David didn't win this battle because of his sling. David won this battle because of God. the 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 philistine soldiers knew that when the philistine soldiers saw what happened with goliath they turned and ran but they didn't run because they were afraid of a shepherd boy with four stones left there's no way that could have defeated an entire army they ran not because they were afraid of david they ran because it was clear to them that it was the god of israel who was fighting on david's behalf and they didn't want any part of that He did go on relying upon God to win the day. His hope was in the Lord. Later in his life, David would, in writing a psalm in uh, Psalm 20, Psalm 20, verse 7, here's the way he would say it. In Psalm 27, he says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What David teaches us here is not that we're relying upon his sling, but that he relies upon the Lord. Now, when we're fighting our battles, I'm not saying we don't rely upon professional help when we need professional help. I trust doctors to help me with medical problems. I trust lawyers to help me with legal problems. I trust accountants to help me with financial issues. It's not that we don't, it's not that we don't rely or don't use the, that that wisdom of the world at all. It's just that we recognize that winning the battle ultimately means we're placing our hope not in that, but in God. I can't go in these. I can't fight the way the world does. If you're following along in your listening guide, let's fill in the first blank on your listening guide. Christ's followers do not rely upon the powers of this world, political, social, economic, military, etc., To accomplish the work we are left in this world to do. Here it is. Why would we rely on those powers when we have access to the power of God? So the first takeaway from this is, I can't go in these. I can't can't hope in these powers. The second takeaway is with regard to something that Goliath says. Look what it says. And Goliath cursed David. By the names of his gods. He cursed him by the names of his gods. Who are the gods? When we're fighting our battles in this world, who are the gods that, that we're being cursed in the name of? I suppose, I suppose the case can be made that there's a whole host of little G gods whose names the world invokes today to fight against us. So many idols, so many things that people worship. But there's one in particular but it seems to me anyway, it feels to me like there's one in particular in our culture that all of these other little G gods come up under, that all of these other idols that people worship come, come up under. And Jesus had a name for this God. Jesus referred to this God as Mammon. Mammon. Now in Scripture, it also translates as Money. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is one of the places we see this come up. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, when Jesus is kind of giving his opus, right? His, his big message for what he came to tell us. In the middle of that message, he says in verse 19, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moth eat them. And rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, money is a transla- translation of a word, a Greek word, that is actually mammon. I actually prefer to use the word mammon. It's almost like a proper noun. In fact, many translations treat it as a proper noun. And the reason I think it, it's more like a proper noun is because I, th- I think that it, it, it embraces not just money itself. It embraces the entire spirit that gives rise To our love of money. Mammon doesn't just include money, it includes every system that has developed over the centuries to cause us to desire more wealth and more material things. Every social machine that is specifically designed to keep us depending upon accumulating more and more wealth. We've heard it taught, we've heard it preached. Time and time again, over the course of our lifetimes, all of us are fully aware of its unhealthy presence in our lives, and yet, few of us are really willing to do much about that. You see, the influence of mammon, the influence of that spirit, the influence of that that entire system of thinking in our lives, it's really not even open for debate at this point. We know it's there. We live in it. We breathe it. We swim in it. In fact, we almost can't describe it anymore because it's a part of life. We can't describe it any better than a fish would be able to describe water. You can't describe it because it's just a part of everything we do. It has shaped and it has controlled how the world fights its battles. Like Goliath, the world comes to us cursing us in the name of mammon. Think about how, think about just our vocabulary alone, how many ways we talk about it in terms of battles, how, how mammon, how the idea of ma- money has, has incorporated so much of what we say when it comes to struggles and conflicts. We talk about following the money, right? We talk about boycotts. And cancel culture. That's about mammon. Make no mistake. We talk about dark funding or dark money in politics. We talk about voting with our money. All of these are references to a spirit that is a part of our culture. It's the language our culture speaks. Mammon. It's at the heart of the world's power. Political power. Social power. Economic power. It's all about mammon. One of my favorite writers today is a guy named Andy Crouch. He'd just been given a gift. God seems to have given him a gift of being able to really see what's going on in our culture and talk about it in a way that you don't hear it talked about much. And he understands the scripture and and how what's going on in our culture misses so much eternal truth about scripture. Andy Crouch, when he's talking about mammon, one of the things he says is the more time we spend in the world that, that mammon creates, the more we become conformed to its image. It's true. It's true for all of us. Another thing he says about mammon is he says, mammon doesn't, mammon absolutely wants something, very much indeed, because mammon is ultimately not at all just a thing. Or even a system, but a will at work in history. And what it wants, above all, is to separate power from relationship, abundance from dependence, and being from personhood. What mammon wants is to prevent us from forming as human creatures the way God intended us to form. And it's very good at making that happen. Scripture contains lots of warnings for us about the worship of mammon. I know you know them. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. See, there's just no immunity for us from the forces of mammon. There is none. In this life... There is no reaching a level of spiritual maturity beyond the grasp of mammon. Not in this life. If you have your listening guide, if you're following along, fill in the second statement. For the Christ follower, guarding our hearts against the ungodly power of mammon is a lifelong pursuit. In our current culture, any straying at all from closely following Christ is a step towards slavery to mammon. So the first takeaway is, I can't go in these. I don't want to fight with the powers of this world. I want to fight with the Lord. The second takeaway is, and I'm going to guard my heart against the work of mammon in my life. But what does it mean that I want to go and fight in the name of the Lord? Which is what David said, I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. In the name of the Lord. What does that mean to fight in the name of the Lord? Well, at the very least i think it means that we're we're doing what we're doing in accordance with the nature and the purpose of god that we're that we're 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 doing the way we're doing this the way god wants it done in order to accomplish the things god wants done it means that we are abandoning and this is key our own assumptions about outcome we're not worried about outcome. We're worried about doing this the way God wants us to do it. We have to let go of what we want in order to pursue what God wants. We must literally redefine victory in those terms. In David's case, it's a little different because in David's case, God gave him a clear vision of the outcome. He understood that. But aren't there plenty of other examples in Scripture where God says, go and do, and he doesn't give a a definition of what the outcome is going to be. He just says, go and do. He says to Abraham, leave your home, leave your family, go. Abraham says, where am I going? He says, I'll tell you that when we get there. There are plenty of instances like that, and there are plenty of instances in our own life where we're not guaranteed a particular outcome. There are battles that God places before us that, we have a clear sense of God calling us into it, but no sense at all about what the outcome's gonna be. That has to be okay with us because we've let go of the desire, the need to know the outcome in order to fight this battle the way God wants us to fight it. Of course, we have a preference. It's okay to have a preference. Jesus went to Gethsemane with a preference, didn't he? He said, Father, I understand what tomorrow holds. It'd be all right with me if there was another way to do this. If, if there were another option here, I would, I would pick that. But I want what you want. That's what it means to be willing to abandon our sense of what the outcome should be. Because what we're saying is, here's what I want. I'm, I'm honest with you about that, Lord. This is what I'm hoping for. This is what I want. But what I want even more than that is whatever you want. And so I will fight this battle. Because you've called me into it and I'll leave the outcome up to you. That's what abandonment looks like. David ran into this battle with that sense of abandonment. He ran into it. I love that. If you have your listening guide, if you're following along, fill in the last statement on your listening guide. Fighting our battles in the name of the Lord means we fight them in accordance with his nature and his purposes. It means we let go of our own preferences regarding the outcome. And we learn to desire only his will. So how does a person after God's own heart fight the battles that you and I are left in this world to fight? Right? How does it happen? Number one, we don't put all of our hope in the powers of this world. Rather, we put our hope in the Lord. Number two, we guard our hearts against the love or the worship of this thing that we call mammon. And number three, we run into the fight in the name of the Lord in accordance with his nature and his purposes with abandonment. That's what this teaches me. Will you pray with me? Father, this abandonment issue is a a difficult issue for us. You know that. You know us. You know our hearts. We confess to you, Lord, that we want what we want, And it's not always easy. In fact, it's rarely easy for us to let go of that. We confess to you that the powers of this world are awfully enticing. That it's awfully easy to slip into the way the world fights its fights and to look a lot like the world rather than being changed to look different. We confess to you, Father, that there's much about mammon that holds us tight, that enslaves us. There's much about mammon that we find difficult to walk away from. We confess to you, Father, that it's just difficult sometimes doing things the way we know you would want us to do them and seeking your will even above our own. All of these things are struggles for us, Lord. In a sense, I suppose the truth is, Father, the battle that we fight is within ourselves. And yet you've shown us the way. You've shown us what you desire of us. You've shown us what it looks like. Your word is is such an enlightening thing for us, Father. It really is a, a lamp unto our feet. It really is a light unto our path. Will you teach us how to use it that way? Will you show us your ways? That's our prayer, Lord. We love you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.